3: Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. So that's two Supreme Court justices the Senate Judiciary Committee has to subpoena and refer to the DOJ for criminal prosecution. Oh, right, they can't because Senator Feinstein has now had shingles since the year 1886. Well, at least get John Roberts in to testify voluntarily because, oh, right, he says no. But here, I've enclosed a copy of the Statement of Ethics, Principles, and Practices, to which all of the justices pretend to subscribe to. We have to get Neil Gorsuch off the Supreme Court immediately. He's a crook. Another crook. Another Republican, theocratic, religious, bought-and-paid-for court crook. Politico revealing that from 2015 to 2017, this scumbag Neil Gorsuch was trying to unload a 3,000-square-foot log house and 40 acres that he co-owned in Granby, Colorado. No buyers, no interest. And then suddenly... On April 16th, 2017, Gorsuch and his two partners managed to sell the place. And the price was $1,825,000. And the 20% of it Gorsuch owned brought him somewhere between a quarter of and a half of a million dollars. What happened in the interim? Was there a sudden run on log cabins in the Colorado mountains? No. No. On April 7th, 2017, Neil Gorsuch's nomination to the Supreme Court was confirmed. And nine days later, the sale was confirmed. And six years later, the buyer was also confirmed. And we now know the buyer is Brian Duffy the chief executive and head of the litigation department of the law firm Greenberg-Trorig. And oh, what a shock this is. Since then, Greenberg-Trorig has been involved in at least 22 cases brought to the Supreme Court. And Neil Gorsuch, has voted on 12 of them, and guess what? The batting average of the chairman of Greenberg-Trorig, Brian Duffy, before the guy he paid at least a quarter of a million dollars to, that batting average is 667. No, actually, he's hitting 700. A Greenberg-Trorig lawyer also represented North Dakota in the state's bid to unroll the Clean Air Act, and Gorsuch and the court ruled 6-3 to against the EPA in that one. And this Brian Duffy, who gave a sitting Supreme Court justice, a brand new one, at least 250 grand and maybe 500 grand, nine days after the justices' robes came back from the tailors, quote, I've never spoken to Gorsuch. I've never met him. But surely there are ways for us mere mortals to know about this. And why didn't we know about this? Are there no disclosure forms? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Gorsuch did not disclose the identity of the purchaser, Politico reports. That box was left blank. Blank. Blank as our collective mother-blanking governmental ethic. Well, shouldn't it be on the disclosure form under his income? Nope. All he had to do is fill in who wrote the check for his income, and Gorsuch wrote in Walden Group LLC. And who is Walden Group LLC? It is the business name that Gorsuch and his 2 partners gave themselves. A Supreme Court justice does not have to say who bought the house. He doesn't even have to say it was a house. He only has to say who gave him money. In this case, the people who gave him money was the corporate version of himself. God damn it! Dick Durbin has to subpoena Gorsuch immediately, and uh, oh no, Dianne Feinstein is not taking calls and cannot be disturbed. And how dare you suggest that she should resign so Senate Judiciary can approve judges again and get subpoenas out any time in this lifetime? Oh, but thank God, Chairman Durbin has saved the day by issuing another statement. We have seen a steady stream of revelations regarding Supreme Court justices falling short. If the court does not take adequate action, Congress must committee closely examine. Oh, sorry. No, it's the same statement. Dick Durbin is rapidly turning into Susan Collins. No, that's not fair. When Susan Collins expresses her meaningless concern, the people she's concerned about... Respond to her personally. When Durbin wrote to Chief Justice Roberts, Roberts had a judicial conference committee flunky write back to say the letter had been referred to a committee. And now Roberts has finally condescended to send Durbin a note saying, no, guess what? I'm not stopping by. Why don't you subpoena me? All oh, right. Feinstein is not currently in this plane of consciousness. Best of luck in your investigations, Dick. Corruption in this country is working 24-7, and checks and balances has checked out. Quote, the fact that he was going to be a Supreme Court justice, the buyer of the Gorsuch property Duffy told Politico, with a straight face and with the condescension of somebody who not only knows he's going to get away with it, but knows he's going to make money later from getting away with it, was absolutely irrelevant to the purchase of that property. It's a wonderful piece of property, and we're so glad we bought it, unquote. And Duffy might as well have added, P.S. F.U. The corruption does not stop there, and you may notice that this is the invisible thread in today's news. Harlan Crow we found out yesterday did have family business in front of the Clarence Thomas court, despite that fig leaf all the fascists have been hiding behind that he didn't, he has done something startling. And when you say that somebody who has his own wing of Nazi memorabilia in his house has done something startling, it's goddamned startling. The Intercept and the Project on Government Oversight, POGO, reporting that Harlan Crowe and his brother Trammell and his family, quote, bought citizenship in St. Kitts and Nevis, the notorious home for tax dodging and the avoidance of, you know, laws. I mean, they have a leaked document from the office of the prime minister of St. Kitts to the Crowe attorney reading, quote, Ray application for citizenship by investment, on behalf of Mr. Harlan Rogers Crow and family, we are pleased to advise you that the application for citizenship by investment on behalf of the above-named applicant has been approved. In short, Harlan Crow, Clarence Thomas's quote friend unquote, bought so-called golden passports at a cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, more than the Colorado lawyer paid Justice Gorsuch. That's how expensive they are. So now, just in case Dianne Feinstein ever returns to the Senate or the planet or resigns or the Democrats find one set of balls among them, Harlan Crow can always flee to St. Kitts. I mean, right now, The Supreme Court is so bad that Brett, the money star, where we can help make your dreams come true, use the money for anything you desire, imagine, anything you desire, Kavanaugh, would only be the third or fourth justice that you would choose in a Supreme Court corruption fantasy league draft. Jesus H. Christ. And now, because I feel like collectively as a nation, we have not been corrupt enough today. Nikki Haley, who is running for the Republican nomination for president, even though nobody knows why, received stock options last month, apparently worth nearly three hundred thousand dollars just weeks after declaring her candidacy. She is on the board of directors of Great Southern Homes. And even though presidential candidates traditionally quit directorships, Nikki has not had a job since she quit being UN ambassador. And so there she was minding her own business when Great Southern merged with Diamond Head Holdings. And what plops out of the sky but 26,703 shares of the new company in her name. Ah, and this couldn't possibly have anything to do with Haley packing the South Carolina Building Codes Council seven years ago. And what do you know? Suddenly requirements for sprinklers vanished from new homes there. And this is a fundamental crisis. if, If you're the head of a massive Colorado law firm who just paid a Supreme Court justice at least a quarter of a million dollars for his little gray home in the West, hope he's got sprinklers out there in the Gorsuch log cabin. I'm really worried about this guy. And speaking of presidential candidates, it's been four weeks since we heard from the hearings that were supposed to be starting in Tallahassee and the biannual efforts by the Republicans in Florida to take their law requiring any state officer to resign before running for a federal office and suspend those laws until there are no state officers considering running for a federal office. And then when the law could not affect anybody, then you reinstitute the law. This time, this would be the DeSantis version of this three-card Monty scam. There's a law against this? Okay, suspend it. Okay, nobody's trying to break this law? Okay, put the law back in force. Well, now we do have an update on the DeSantis, let's suspend the law gambit. Charles Gasparino, ex-Wall Street Journal, ex-CNBC, formerly pushed the fact that he was a Pulitzer Prize nominee until everybody said, wait, anybody can be nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Now he's still at Fox Business in the New York Post and reporting, quote, my GOP sources with ties to Florida's GOP leadership say the rumor is Trump plans to go to Tallahassee and kill this bill to totally derail DeSantis. Oh, great. The local version of January 6th, January 6th, the sequel, January 6th to Electric Boogaloo. Because we just haven't had a good coup attempt lately in this country. And, of course, it always circles back to Trump and the first Republican attempt to overthrow the government. And you've probably by now heard the Abby Grossberg tape of Ted Cruz trying to spell it out to that idiot Maria Bartiromo that the way to inaugurate Trump instead of Biden is to throw the slates of electors of several different states into doubt. And then you create a grand commission, just like they did after the corrupt Hayes-Tilden presidential election of 1876. And the commission could find profound voter fraud uh, over there in that sort of direction. So, so, So one of them states and declare that the electors supporting Trump should be counted by the Electoral College instead of the electors supporting Biden. And thus, you could use the Constitution to kill democracy. We think Maria understood, but it's hard to tell. There were gasps when this tape was played yesterday, except uh, that's what the objections by the senators and the congressmen, the Republican conspirators, that's what they were about. That's what those guys were doing on January 6th when they were interrupted by, you know, a different coup coming down the street. And I'm not saying Ted Cruz should not be arrested, tried, and at least imprisoned. I'm just saying there's no gasping required here. The Republicans, not the mob outside the Capitol, but the mob inside the Capitol, they tried to overthrow the government in January 2021. Remember? And they will try it again. The leaders of our nation are so corrupt or complacent about corruption that the various rival gangs of corruption are now blaming each other for all the corruption. It was Donald Trump's words, the man said yesterday. It was his motivation. It was his anchor that caused what occurred. Who said that? The lawyer for Enrique Tarrio, the former leader of the Proud Boys, you know, the stand back and stand by Proud Boys. Ontario has turned on Trump because to repurpose the words of Jane Addams, the cure for the ills of corruption is more corruption. And speaking of trials and corruption and Trump, the E. Jean Carroll case went before the jury yesterday as the trial opened and her attorney, Sean Crowley, said in her opening statement that Carroll and two other alleged victims will testify. Quote, three women, one clear pattern, Pounce, kiss, grab, grope, don't wait. When you're a star, you can do anything you want. Well played. And when they speak up about what happened, attack, humiliate them, call them liars, call them too ugly to assault, unquote. I hope she now follows this up with Trump's infamous quote about Carol, that quote, she's not my type, which it just dawns on me now is actually short for, and Carol's attorney should say this, it's short for, well, what else could he be saying here? She's not my type? What he's saying here is, she's not my type to rape. Trump was saying that he would choose different women to rape. Yeah, the country has always been this corrupt, but a long time ago, people used to be afraid of getting caught. Well, we'll just subpoena them all, but oh Diane Feinstein. Still ahead on this edition of Countdown. For those of you who do not like corruption, there's more corruption. The woman Jeff Shell got fired over at NBC is now linked to an 80-year-old buyout tycoon and part owner of the National Hockey League Seattle Kraken. 80, I'm doing something wrong over here. Plus the Tucker Carlson doomsday plan. And the fascist radio host who says it's American tradition to ban books and quote weird sexual behaviors and such and so forth. Oh yeah, why is that important? Because this is the guy who was in a gay sex scene in a movie. And I felt a little twinge in my side yesterday. might've been all that corruption I ate just above the belt. And all of you who have been through what I have been through knows what happens when you feel that twinge in that spot, you flash back to the day they told you, the appendix has burst, run for the hills. Only, uh, I kept working for two days. I didn't know my appendix had burst. That was interesting. Things I promise not to tell ahead, that's next. This is
0: Countdown.
3: Coming up, so the reporter who helped Jeff Schell lose his job as CEO of NBC, she was reportedly also hooking up with the owner of the National Hockey League's Seattle Kraken. The 80-year-old owner. First, postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Washington, and for some reason President Biden is too old to run for re-election at the age of 80? 80. 81 on election day. I mean, Trump will be 78 on election day, but go on. Honestly, what has Biden not done as president? I mean, I wanted Trump in jail by now. On the other hand... No second coup. We're functioning internationally again. We got the stain of Trump wiped off nearly all the government. Ukraine has gone extraordinarily well. He attacked MAGA by name. He's treating them as terrorists. Only the crooked Supreme Court has held back his domestic policy. He did defeat Trump and humiliated him repeatedly since, and he can do it again. And your younger choice, with a better chance of keeping that Republican with the mindset of a serial killer from getting back into the White House, is who? The vice president? Gavin Newsom? Me? Who? Dateline, New York. Lots of follow-up to the firing of the mother, Tucker. Saw a lot of people across the political spectrum asking why he has not said anything yet. And once again, pay attention to this, please. If they are paying him out and he says anything without their permission, they can fire him for cause. And you want him to say something? for which he then has to forfeit like $40 million? Aren't we enjoying this time when he's not saying anything? Aren't we enjoying this interval in which he says nothing? This is the good days. This is the first time I've ever been in agreement with Tucker Carlson. Shut up and stay shut up. This nugget from Vanity Fair Monday morning as the phone rang at the Carlson house and CEO Suzanne Scott said, Hi, you're fired. Tucker Carlson was expecting an update on... His contract negotiations. <laughs> he was expecting to hear about his new deal that would go through the year 2029. Nancy Faust. Instead, Tucker Carlson got the sack and Rolling Stone's report that Fox has kept a file of dirt on him, ready to leak if he does try to get out an anti-Fox message now or in the future. Eight sources telling that magazine say that the infamous Irina Brigante is the keeper at Fox of the Tuck Muck. No indication what's in there that isn't also in the Abby Grossberg suit or in the Dominion revelations. Lots of people recoiled at this news even seem to have a little empathy for Carlson. This is standard operating procedure in high-priced TV. NBC kept a file like that on me. And even after we negotiated a settlement that saved me the trouble of suing them when they breached my contract, twice, in 2010, they still leaked a lot of it right down to a story that I occasionally used to wear five-toed running shoes in the office at 30 Rock. When I left Current TV and I had to sue them for the $50 million they owed me and stopped paying me because they didn't want to anymore, they released a story that I was so haughty and arrogant that I demanded that Current replace my car service because the driver smelled bad. Well, of course the driver smelled bad. He was smoking cigarettes in the car. Then the reason he was smoking cigarettes in his car was that Current TV had stopped paying its bills, including for the car service they were contractually obligated to provide for me and for the insurance they had on me. So like six different services understandably refused to pick me up anymore because we weren't paying them, we were now down to the car service where the drivers were allowed to smoke. Okay, a couple of numbers. No, Fox, quote, news, unquote, did not collapse with the firing of Tucker Carlson. Eighty one percent of his usual audience showed up for the first post firing show anyway. That's two point six million compared to the one and a half million on MSNBC. There was a boost at Fox rival Newsmax. It had averaged one hundred ninety two thousand viewers the previous three Mondays. It had five hundred and thirty one thousand this Monday. Lastly, I have been asked a couple of times what made Tucker Carlson, who had seemed like a kind of rational, albeit foppily dressed conservative at CNN and then MSNBC, turning into this flaming, raging, racist, maniacal conspiracy theorist at Fox. Well, there's a mistaken assumption here. I worked with him. My impression of him, and this is 2005, 6, 7, 8, my impression of Tucker Carlson was He was a flaming, raging, racist, maniacal conspiracy theorist who thought that the best way to make money in television was to pretend he wasn't any of that and was instead just Joe College in a bow tie. Here, in brief, is what I think happened. His MSNBC show, The Situation with Tucker Carlson, premiered on June 13, 2005. Unfortunately for him, at just about the same time, The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer appeared on CNN. Well, the day that Tucker started, the other shows on MSNBC included Dan Abrams' reports, Hardball with Chris Matthews, Countdown with Your Friend and Mine, Tucson at Nine, and one of his regular liberal foils on that show being Rachel Maddow, and then it was Scarborough Country at Ten. The situation with Tucker Carlson was panned so quickly and so uniformly that critics were calling for its cancellation in newspapers the next week. In fact, I swear this is true. I started the worst persons in the world segment to defend Tucker Carlson from one of the newspaper critics because these were the same idiots who kept saying MSNBC changed shows too frequently. And here she was demanding that Carlson should be canceled after episode seven or something. Well, soon enough, they moved the show to 6 p.m., and then in 2008, they canceled Tucker outright. And this is what happened to the other people that Carlson saw while he was failing at MSNBC. I was doing well in 2005, but by 2006, I had the top-rated cable news show that wasn't on Fox and a new contract for very many dollars and a bidding war between NBC and CNN. After Don Imus got fired and the original choice to replace him in the mornings, David Gregory did not work out. Scarborough was asked to try it. And while he sucks, he has achieved success in the morning that he did not have at night, And he managed to marry somebody else's wife, so I guess this worked out for him. Matthews got a syndicated political show on NBC, lasted about 10 years before they finally fired him. Carlson's sidekick, Maddow, became my backup host. And then I got her her own show in his old time slot, and she promptly went out and beat Larry King in the ratings. And in the other old time slot that Tucker had, MSNBC put on at 6 o'clock, Ed Schultz, even Dan Abrams. Be- became general manager of the network, for a while anyway. In short, everybody at MSNBC, except Tarka Carlson, succeeded. I think it broke his brain. I know it broke his ability to conceal his evil. And bluntly, look, I hate the guy as much as anybody else in the world. He's made a lot of money being evil. Even now, his shame and his shock are slightly blunted by the 40 million or more Fox will still wind up paying him. Still ahead on Countdown, back to that era, 2007. Not only did I work two days after I burst my appendix, but I beat CNN in the ratings. And that was back when that was difficult. Today, my first appendix could beat CNN in the ratings by itself. First, time for the Daily Roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute the segment started uh, to defend Tucker Carlson, today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, bunch of conservative Harvard law students. And you know what conservative law students are learning to do? That's right, overturn democracy. They posted an online symposium, The Jurisprudence of Justice Samuel Alito. Now, if you don't want to read it, or you don't have a computer, don't worry. Alito will be happy to leak it to you himself. The Bronze. Host Michael Knowles from The Daily Wire, the guy who threatened to eliminate transgenderism entirely from the United States, entirely would include all the transgender people, too. Now Knowles is defending, well... Basically, every other fascist idea all at once. Quote, banning books is very American. Banning drag shows is obviously very American. All sorts of weird sexual behaviors were illegal in the United States until the Supreme Court invented some right to do weird sex stuff, unquote. This is not just fascism by this guy, Knowles. It's masochism. As a failed actor, Knowles starred in a 2012 student movie called The House of Shades in which he performed a gay sex scene. Not that there's anything wrong with a gay sex scene, except 2023 Michael Knowles would obviously be saying that 2012 Michael Knowles was breaking the law by performing a gay sex scene. There's a lot going on inside this guy. But our winner, well, a lot of moving parts in this one. Let's just include all of them. The winners, Jeff Shell, Hadley Gamble, and David Bonderman. Let me see if I can sort through all of this for you. Clear picture coming in now on the relationship with Hadley Gamble that got my lying ex-friend Jeff Shell fired for cause as chairman of NBC Universal on Sunday, as we refer to it around here, Schadenfreude Sunday, and he got no dollars on the way out. CNN reporting that Hadley Gamble's CNBC contract was expiring and she had been told CNBC was not renewing her. This seems to have been concurrent with her filing a harassment complaint against Shell. It's not clear which was first, or if perhaps Shell offered to give her a new deal if she gave him a new deal. But now the New York Post has a new twist to this. While she was still in the relationship with Shell, who was one of her bosses throughout the whole thing, a whistleblower at a company called TPG Equity, one of its managing directors, filed a complaint to the Securities and Exchange Commission, Securities and Exchange Commission. I've got a complaint here about this Hadley Gamble from CNBC. The complaint to the SEC said the buyout firm's 80-year-old owner David Bonderman was also in a relationship with Hadley Gamble. And he was billing investors in the company for the costs of this relationship. Bonderman, worth a reported $6 billion and known to spend some of it by bringing in the stones to play at his private parties, quote, according to the whistleblower complaint is known within the company to have regular female companions on which he lavishes gifts or to whom he otherwise provides benefits often brings them with him on business trips ms gamble especially is known to fly with him regularly on tpg's planes apparently there was something to this complaint the company settled the complaint with the sec for 13 million dollars since this filing Mr. Bonderman who is 80 and his daughter became the co-majority owners of the National Hockey League team, the Seattle Kraken. So this scandal now includes a Gamble, some Kraken, and a Shell. Hadley Gamble, Jeff Shell, and David. Hey, now I own a hockey team. Wanna come ride on my Zamboni? Bonderman, today's. days. <laughs> I like that one. Worst Parsons. IN THE ZAMBONI WORLD!
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or.
6: Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today.
3: Still ahead on countdown. It blew up good. It blew up real good. In this case, it was my appendix. And when I finally found out about it, two days later, I was completely surprised. And almost dead. Things I promise not to tell coming up. First in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. This time it is Titus here in New York. Titus is a big, smiling, shy, but unusually affectionate 60 pound brown pity mix. He was three years old and he was low maintenance, and his quote unquote humans dumped him because they didn't have time anymore. They took him to a kill shelter. Titus is okay with dogs. He loves toys and fetch and walks. He's never bitten anybody. He's never been worse than shy to anybody. And yet he is on the kill list. He needs an adopter or foster or our pledges to help defray the cost of a rescue to save his life. You can find Titus on my Twitter feeds. Please help if you can. An RT may help too. I thank you and Titus thanks you. On Wednesday, September 12th, 2007, I began to feel bad, all strained on my right side. But my girlfriend at the time, Katie Turr, and I had just moved only a few weeks before into our new apartment, and I was still pushing boxes around, and I thought I'd just strained something. The next morning, the 13th, I was still feeling like crap, but now my stomach also hurt, and I thought I was bloated or constipated or something, and maybe some sit-ups would help, and actually they felt like they had relieved some of the pressure. And Katie's father, who was among many, many things an EMT, happened to be in town. He gave me a Vicodin or something, and I took a nap and went into work a little later than usual at MSNBC, which I could get away with that day because President Bush was speaking that night, and almost all of my work that night would be ad-libbed before his speech and then after his speech. I wrote what I needed to write quickly, and at about 7.15, I went out to the show line producer, Greg Kordick, who sat in exactly the right place, that he could make certain that I had left for makeup and was going to the studio on time. I had to walk right past him, and I said, I'm exhausted. I'm just going to close my eyes at my desk for a couple of minutes. If you don't see me go past by like 7.40, come in and wake me up. And I sat down, I put my legs up on my desk, I folded my hands behind my head, and I just closed my eyes. More to rest my eyes than in any real hope of sleeping. I am a fickle sleeper. There's not a chance I could snooze like that. Next thing I know, it's 7.40 and I'm feeling somebody shaking me. And seriously, a hand on each shoulder. Apparently it took Mr. Cordick a little while to wake me up and I thanked Greg and staggered to the makeup room and I realized now I had a little fever, but it was too late to do anything about it. So I got my makeup, Went to the set, did the lead into Bush's speech, took some notes during it, did the post-speech wrap up with the analysts, and after two hours on the air, I got in the car that they sent for me to go home to New York from New Jersey, and I fell asleep again in the car. I still thought, this is some weird stomach flu, and I'm bloated beyond belief, and I really don't feel good, but I bet that's just from listening to George W. Bush one time too many. I'll just go to bed. I found it was too difficult to lie on my stomach or my side, which presented a problem because rarely can I fall asleep on my back, but I had to try and the next thing I knew it was morning. I slept like a stone, but I still felt really bad, in fact a little bit worse. On top of all which... Katie was yelling at me about something, and I had a checkup for something unrelated at my doctor's office, and I left early so I could go buy something for the constipation. And then, when my doctor called me in, he said, you look terrible, are you okay? And I said, no, I got this really sore stomach. And the last night, I had this fever for a while, and he kind of gasped, and now he looked terrible. And he said, when was the last time you ate? I said, you know, funny, I I haven't thought about food for a couple days, and then he asked me, When was the last time that happened? And I said, when I was in the womb. And he had me stand up and he pushed his finger into my stomach about five inches to the right of my navel. And holding the finger there, he said, does this hurt? And I said, not at all. And then he said, does it hurt now as I take my finger away? And I don't remember if I said anything or not because I saw the proverbial stars in front of my eyes and I let out a scream. So he said, get back in your car and you go to our other office at 59th and 10th and go see our gastro specialist. And I said, sure, just don't poke me again. And when I got there, they showed me right in and she taps me and she says, why are you hunched over like that? And I said, I'm hunched over? And she says, if you haven't eaten in two days, how come your stomach is hard as a rock? And I said, Is this a medical quiz? Because you're the doctor. And she says, I want you to go across the street to the hospital emergency room. I'll call them while you're walking. Just go right in and tell them you're the one Dr. Lou called about because, boy, your appendix burst. And although I think you'll be fine, technically you've got about, well, 8, 10, 12 hours to live. Well, that got my attention. And as I'm grabbing my jacket and my bag, I say, wait, if this isn't just constipation, how come it felt better when I did the sit-ups? And she says, because when you did the sit-ups, you only had an infected appendix that was going to burst. When you did the sit-ups, dummy, that's when the appendix burst. You burst it. So I said, wait, I went on TV for two hours after my appendix burst? Shut up, she explained. She was right. The ER people saw me immediately. They ran a bunch of tests and reminded me that if I hadn't already, I should probably call in sick for a couple days. And I said, wait, what day is today? And they helped out and they said Friday. So I called MSNBC and I called the producer of Football Night in America, which I was doing for NBC on Sundays. And I said, hey, sorry, looks like I'm technically dying from a burst appendix. And they're going to operate on me as soon as they can get a surgeon in here. And they say it's real unlikely I'll be out of the hospital by Sunday or Monday. Have a nice day. I called Katie, who had already gotten to her job in local cable news in Brooklyn, and she turned around to come help me out at the hospital. And then I just waited and got goofier and goofier and goofier and goofier. goofier. I think they operated around 7 or 8 p.m., The surgeon introduced himself. He was a big sports fan. Fred Kimmelsteel, the surgeon named by prophetic parents. And I went to the anesthesiologist and I warned him. I said, I'd once woken up from anesthesia during an endoscopy. And could he make sure that that didn't happen again? In fact, I said that the other day when I had my knee operated on and this guy did the same thing. They both of these anesthesiologists just laughed when I challenged them to knock me out a little bit harder. So Dr. Kimmel Steele asked me about the latest Met choke job. This is the one in 2007, not the one in 2022. And I started to talk about David Wright. And the next thing I knew, I was freezing cold and trying to open my eyes. And it was three hours later and the surgery was over. What a mess, said Dr. Kimmel Never had one that bad before. Thank God it abscesses. You'll be here all weekend. And I was. The next day they made me get out of bed. And I think it took me half an hour to walk about 20 feet down the hallway and back. And there was a morphine drip and a new bag of intravenous antibiotics every two hours. And at one point, the phone rang. And I really did have to go back the following week and ask the producer if this actually happened, or I merely hallucinated it. But the phone rang, and it was the football night in America, people. And they said they were going to shoot video of the hospital I was in. And I said, I don't think you can see me from the street. And they said, right, we know that. We're just pretty much doing this for a laugh at your expense while you're in the hospital and we're on TV. And then finally, my appetite came back on Monday and I was able to eat some pancakes and they sent me home in the afternoon. And for two days after that, I was still sweating out the poisons and the antibiotics and the painkillers. And I mean, I was so warm, I could not bear to have a shirt on. But by Thursday, I was able to go back to work. And just to show off, I wrote a special comment about Bush from my first show back. I was extremely pleased with myself. Now, there are three postscripts to this. Now, obviously, I learned and I've just taught you the test for appendicitis or burst appendix. If you poke it and it doesn't hurt until you stop poking it, it's your appendix. Fat lot of good, that'll do me now. I don't have an appendix. Second, weeks later, I was at dinner with my friend John Cleese from Monty Python's Flying Circus, and he said he'd heard the story about my appendix and he was very upset with me. I did the exact same thing. John said it blew up and for two days I had no idea how serious it was thought it was a cold but don't tell people that don't undersell it and call it a burst appendix you and I we were both dying of septicemia never let anybody forget that and I haven't and the last and best postscript was while I'm lying there recovering after the surgery the phone rings and it's my executive producer and she says good news When you anchored before and after Bush's speech, and you got sick, or after you got sick, you beat CNN in the ratings by like 25%. And as stoned on the painkillers as I might have been, I was still able to say to her, I beat CNN! I beat CNN with one appendix tied behind my back! (laughs) I've done all the damage I can do here. Here are the credits. Most of the music arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chennail, who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chennail. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN, Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. And our announcer today was Jonathan Banks. Everything else is pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 841st day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States with the assistance of Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz. Don't forget to keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co lead in the six part limited series Expats. I think
6: I learn a little bit with every character that I've. i think usually i play a character and it causes enough introspection that i learn something about myself i honestly can't gush enough about freaky tales i'm so excited
0: to share it with more people if you like what you hear be sure to review like and subscribe to the scene to scene podcast
1: hey sarah i love that spring break vlog you posted on zigazoo omg you watched it yeah it was so cool